Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Craig Sponholtz, a permaculture practitioner who operates Watershed Artisans. One of Craig's specialties is in building regenerative earthworks to capture water and restore degraded land. This forms the basis for our conversation today. Before we begin, I would like to say that I am in fundraising mode this fall and need your help to get 2015 off to a good start. If you're in a place where you have some surplus financial capital in your life, please consider making a one-time or ongoing monthly contribution to the show. Find out how at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support. Now then, on to Craig. I'll join you again afterwards with some thoughts and class announcements. Then, Craig, if you're ready, if you could give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and we'll take the conversation from there. Okay, Scott. My background, um, as far as kind of the land restoration work, I'd say primarily started a little over 20 years ago. I had an opportunity to uh, buy my own piece of land in southwestern New Mexico. It's kind of a re reallocated student loan that I diverted into this land purchase. And so that really kind of set me on the path. And then the Next important thing that happened is a, is a good friend um, handed me a permaculture designer's manual at that time. And, you know, I, I kind of bought the land with this idea that I kind of had some understanding that it was degraded and didn't really have a lot of information as to why or anything like that. But I knew I kind of wanted to do something for better or worse and got the permaculture designer's manual in my hands and started experimenting with with things out of that book for several years and it's really kind of evolved from there i mean what i really found out through that process is is what i didn't know but uh, as i mentioned i i diverted part of the student loan to make a down payment on this property so at the same time i was in college and taking both arts classes printmaking ceramics things sculpture things like that and natural resource management. So I felt those two things blended together really well for what I was interested in. And, you know, as I discovered what I what I actually didn't know, I wanted to learn more and more, and that ultimately led me into getting a master's degree to kind of refine that knowledge a bit. But all along, I've, I've had this piece of land and have been experimenting with it, you know, pure trial and error type of work. And yeah, it's been a really interesting, rewarding process. And it it really kind of when you're looking at a a single piece of land like that for about 20 years, um, it really does kind of humble one to, especially in a relatively harsh, arid environment like Southwest New Mexico, you know, some of the dreams and aspirations I started out with have have definitely been laid to the side over the years. I look over this acre that my family lives on and that I've been observing over the last uh, four and a half, five years, and how much things have changed since I began here. And I can only imagine over 20 years how, as you develop your ideas of regenerative practices, how that can change as you become more in tune with that space and your observations become deeper and broader over that landscape. Yeah, I think that what's kind of unique about my situation is this piece of land um, outside of Silver City, New Mexico, is is a place I've only actually lived on 
for less than a year, about eight months or so. And I've even for the last ten years, I, I haven't, I don't live very close to there anymore. So I've always been, um, you know, a visitor on my my own property, so to speak. And you know, my, over the years, what's kind of been different about that situation is that my footprint on the landscape and my influence has actually shrank considerably. When I, when I started out, I had huge ambitions to totally transform the landscape and, and do all those great things that, you know, people tend to get excited about it. You know, I think on a really fundamental level, I just really wanted to get some trees going in a place that's, that's kind of challenging to, to establish trees. And, uh, you know, so I, I tried every possible trick I could employ. and But what that process has kind of brought me to is that to really accomplish anything, I found that I had to do just the right thing at just the right place, just the right time. And if I did all those things and the weather was working in my favor, that something I did might actually have some resilience to it might last more than a few years. And so that's fairly humbling. It's a lot different than, you know, walking out your front door or, you know, living on some acreage and really being able to care for and tend for things in a more intimate way. And so being an absentee landowner presents its own challenges because if you have a, a desire to kind of enhance, transform the land and do things like planting trees and things like that, well, there, there are some, some unique challenges, particularly with all the various critters who are going to be appreciative of that extra greenery and the weather and everything else. So, you know, what, what I've really run up against are the, the limitations of that. And um, I, th- I think that's had a lot of influence on kind of my ideas and my approach to the broad landscape because, you know, in the broader landscape, if you own hundreds of acres or thousands of acres or even just a few acres, there are parts parts of your land that um, you essentially are an absentee landowner, places that you don't get to too often, places that you can't extend that extra energy. And so, you know, that's kind of where I cut my teeth on working with the land and trying to get things grows was not so much in the garden, but in this larger landscape where there's a lot of external influences that couldn't be overridden by anything that I was able to do. So um, I think it's given me a perspective on, you know, well, what can one person do in the broad landscape to affect change? And it really causes one to look at, you know, what are the best opportunities and how can we plug into those? Because, you know, what might just be the best idea off the top of my head could really fall short in terms of feasibility. I've found that over and over in my own experience. So you've continued this process of design, trial, experimentation, finding the errors, and refining your methods to work in the landscapes that you interact with? Yeah, I mean, early on, it's funny because, you know, the design probably wasn't a big part of it, to be honest with you. I think it was more direct trial and error. And and I say that because, as, as I mentioned early on, a lot of what I discovered is what I didn't know. And I think you have to have a really solid baseline of information to, to even move forward with design. Um, otherwise, everything you're doing is, is based on an assumption. And to me, that's that's not really design. So I spent a lot of time just 
doing things. So more in that trial and error mode and, and kind of responding to something that didn't work and saying, well, I'll try this. And, you know, I, I think my process, it, it surely wasn't, you know, elegant <laughs> in any way, but I, I was persistent in what I did always was go back and look at what I'd done and have an understanding that, okay, clearly this isn't working. So how about I try this? And, you know, then maybe that wouldn't work. And I spent quite a few years in, in that process, but I do think that does fall short of design. That's more like crisis, excuse me, crisis management. Is that what brought you to building regenerative earthworks and that experimentation there, the harsh environment of the American Southwest? and needing to utilize all the resources that you could to get your plants to grow in that environment? Or did this develop from another path? No, I'd say it was a, a direct outcome of basically wanting to extend what tree growth was there. And, you know, I, early on I had kind of the, got really sold on the vision of the, the food forest and all that and, you know, wanted to imprint that pattern onto the landscape I was working with. And, to do something like that, you know, um, this part of New Mexico isn't necessarily a place where you're going to have much success just putting a tree in the ground and walking away without much effort and getting something to grow there. So, you know, it, it, those are some of the tricks I had to learn just to, to get a tree established. And, you know, first it was, I was literally hauling water from town, which was 45 minutes away, which became a, a ridiculous expenditure of energy in general and my energy specifically um, to keep some some trees alive, walking around with five-gallon buckets and hauling them an hour away from town. So, you know, I I set up a a simple cistern rain catchment system and then started to learn more more about water harvesting earthworks and what I could do to recontour or reshape the land in a way that maybe I'd catch a little bit more water in specific areas and so, you know, it really came directly out of this, this desire that I had basically imprinted on the land that I, I wanted to see it in a specific way. And I set out on a process of problem solving. I can say 20 years later, that problem solving process was incredibly rewarding, but the land isn't what I really ever envisioned it to be. <laughs> it's still wonderful by a uh, wonderful place by its own right. But you know, I, I can't say the happy ending to this story is that there's a thriving food forest there. Um, I think the happy ending is that I learned an awful lot about what the limitations of the landscape are, given, you know, how much energy one person can input. I've been of a mind for some time that our failures can be as powerful, or if not better, of a learning experience than our successes. And it sounds like you've learned quite a bit from your original vision of that landscape versus what it actually can sustain. I think of some of the pictures of these gorgeous green golf courses in the American Southwest, and then as you see, like the overview, that all around them is just this, you know, kind of a taupe color of the bare, dry earth that is what is natural to that area. And think of all of the inputs and energies, as you mentioned, that are required to keep a golf course existing in that environment versus instead of trying to impose the vision of what a golf course should be on an area, thinking about what the area could look like as a golf course using that 
kind of an image as a way to extend that idea, not that we necessarily need golf courses everywhere. <laughs> that compulsion is a powerful thing for our desire to change the landscape to suit our own needs. I mean, you know, if you think about it, almost everything we do kind of seeks to do that in some way or another, whether it's to extract resources in a more efficient way or create some aesthetic quality that we find desirable, you know, it's irresistible, you know, especially if being able to, to own land is a, you know, it's an amazing thing. And there's, there are a lot of people on this planet who never really get that privilege, you know, especially in the American culture. We're rugged individualists and nobody wants to be what told what they can and can't do on their land. And, you know, everybody kind of has their ideas. And uh, over the years, I, I equate anything that falls under land management as far as people's personal views go are held just as strongly as religion and politics. And, you know, that could be kind of a third rail in conversation as far as, you know, if, if somebody's has some specific idea and you're trying to talk them out of it, it's it's a really powerful force. You know, it drove me to to do all kinds of things and really spend a lot of time and money um, when I was in my even early 20s. Um, those weren't the kinds of things my friends were necessarily doing, that's for sure. And a lot of them were kind of wondering, why is this absorbing so much of your time? So but on a personal level, that compulsion was extremely powerful for me, and it's, you know, this this idea um, of greening the desert that there's some other good examples out there of, and some have been successful and, and some have not, but, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful landscape and the broad vistas and all the things that really attract people to those desert environments, but it's also we find out it's a harsh place to live and there's a there's a lot of challenges and limitations water being the the obvious primary one of course is it fair to say then that one of your biggest challenges is in acquiring or hmm i don't want to say acquiring because that's it's easy to acquire something it's different though to try to harvest it sustainably is one of your biggest challenges in the southwest to have water available for growing? It's right up there for sure. And I think there's some other kind of secondary factors that the lack of water can, contributes to. When you have a arid, semi-arid environment like, like much of New Mexico, one thing you'll also find is when you do put water in the ground through whatever means, whether you're pumping it out of the ground or catching it in cisterns or whatever you're doing, then all the other life comes to to where you are, which which could be a great thing, but it could also mean that well, you know, a situation where your tree or something might need some additional protection from the wildlife and things that are going to come to that additional water. So um, the other challenge we have here in New Mexico is at high elevations we have a relatively short growing season. So I'm I'm currently living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and we're up here at 7,000 feet. And, you know, we have at least five plus months of the year that we have hard freezes every night. So that is another bit of a limiting factor. And, you know, there are places where the soil is not so great. There's not a whole lot of organic matter in the soil. And what was there has largely been uh, washed away through the last hundred plus years of erosion processes and so forth. So, um, you know, you can be, be starting a pretty 
pretty thin resources to begin with. But I, I think that capturing water, harvesting water, um, you know, it is a, a great strategy to begin with. But I, I think for myself, what I've also found is, I guess that glitch persists, huh? I apologize about that. We had a bit of a technological hiccup there and got disconnected. You were talking about the limitations of growing in the environment that you're in because of the high elevation, the way that that affects the growing season, the issues with soil and erosion. I was wondering if you could take us from those limitations into how you're managing that and some of the methods and solutions that come from using regenerative earthworks, including like what kinds are you using? I know that swales and hugel culture are two of the pieces that are being discussed a whole lot right now in the permaculture conversations, in what people are talking about on the web. But I was wondering what other methods you might use in addition to that. And not to pile too many questions on all at once, but also if you're using any type of key line design in your work. Well, I think a good way to answer that question is actually to, to kind of step back uh, one more time to my background and so when I was working on my master's degree, I'd been out of college for about five years and was in the, into the, the working world as a wildland firefighter. And um, once I kind of got sick of that, I thought the best way out was to go back to school. And so at that point, I, I had learned quite a bit about permaculture and agroecology and some of these fields that I'd been really interested in, kind of broadly sustainable land management. And, you know, my, my question that was driving me at that time was really, well, how can I establish perennial vegetation in an environment like this with minimal inputs and, you know, water harvesting became a natural part of that. So what I did for my master's degree is I, I did a comparative study of your conventional water harvesting earthworks, you know, things like swales and check dams and it wasn't a really huge wide range of things, but it was it's things that are very much common practice in permaculture and agroecology. And I compared those to different methods from land restoration techniques, specifically stream restoration techniques. And I wanted to discover is is there an overlap here? Is there, you know, a way to look at these methods? And and originally my thought was, you know, how can we bring things like swales and and other water harvesting techniques, maybe key line, things like that, into the field of land restoration. And going through that process, actually what what I discovered was that I was far more interested in bringing some of the techniques I was learning from stream restoration into the world of water harvesting. Because what you find out is the single best way to harvest water on a broad scale and, and again, that was my area of interest, always has been, is to have a healthy functioning watershed and to have healthy functioning water courses. And so, you know, we can actually capture and store more moisture by managing and proactively restoring stream courses and the watershed as a whole than any single kind of earthworks that can be done. And I've always been looking at, at all these techniques from the lens of broad-scale landscape, minimal input, non-intensive management, so very little time. And so things that are high maintenance, I've always steered away from. 
because I've I've always felt like that if you have a system that relies on you being there at the critical moment, you know, say during a flood or something like that to make the water go where it's supposed to go, then to me that's not a sustainable system. And I know people make things like that work out quite nicely, but, you know, that's just kind of a a relic of, of my lifestyle where um, I, I've tended to travel around quite a bit in my work and I, I'm really home at that critical moment. So I've steered away from systems that rely on our input at some critical moment to make everything work. That brings you correctly to more naturally functioning systems. And that's where some of these stream restoration techniques work really well. So, you know, I, I'd experimented a lot more with contour swales and things like that and discovered a lot of the obvious limitations, at least in my landscape. And I haven't applied a lot of key line design or tool culture or things like that, mostly because what I've kind of evolved into doing was using natural flow paths and taking advantage of those and basically restoring those to a point that they they could be used for some kind of regenerative water source. So it's really kind of bringing the world of restoration into the sustainable land management, permaculture, agroecology, those sorts of fields, and creating a hybrid of the two. I feel like there's not much purpose in doing a lot of intensive water harvesting earthworks if the baseline condition of the watershed you're in continues to decline. That's kind of the foundation of everything. Um, And it gets more complex because then we're talking about a lot of influences that might be happening entirely off of your property, whether it's upstream or downstream. You know, maybe there's erosion in the headwaters above you or something going on down below you that might bring erosion onto your your own property. And so um, kind of managing from that system level or catchment level approach is what I've tried to do. Some of that, for me, points to the idea that those high input approaches are us continuing to impose ourselves on the landscape rather than looking at what the landscape has to offer. I agree with you uh, completely there, Scott. I, I think that is the case. And, you know, I, I think that can be done in beneficial ways. Um, there, there are great examples of people doing some amazing work out there, but they tend to be in the more more successful in humid areas um, or relatively humid areas where you kind of have the vegetation to offer some, some protection from soil erosion. And, and that's really what we're kind of talking about here is when some kind of water harvesting method goes wrong, that's usually the first result. You know, it's so you've collected all this water, you've collected some overland flow in, the, in some kind of earthwork system, and we're rerouting those flow paths across the landscape. And if there were to be a breach or something like that, generally it's going to lead to erosion. But I do feel like some of the broad landscape earthworks are really somewhat of a simplification of what nature's doing. There aren't a whole lot of good examples out there of how natural systems harvest water on contour. 
or on something like a key line. So I, I think those are ingenious strategies. But with the implementation of those strategies comes this huge responsibility that you're also taking on, which is that you know you're moving a critical resource across the landscape in a very deterministic way and saying this is the pattern that resources, water in particular, should be distributed in this landscape. And, you know, these are permanent changes to the the surface of the earth, presumably. And it's going to, you know, move water in different ways, um, essentially indefinitely. And what I don't see a lot of is really looking at, well, what's the consequence of that? Because, I think on a very basic level in terms of hydrology, I'm not convinced that, say, something like a swale or a key line system actually makes any more water. It's just collecting what, what is there more effectively, which could be an incredibly beneficial thing. But if it's collecting what's there more efficiently, then you might also be able to say that that might be at the cost of another area. So there there's now less to go around if we look at a broader and broader landscape. So I'm a bit more cautious than a lot of folks are about really trying to gather up as as much water in one place and be responsible for it. And I'm much more opportunistic in my approach as far as, you know, looking at, at where the water already is, not really changing its flow path or trying to work with natural drainage lines and so forth and maximize the opportunities there. Because what I've found through my own work is by working directly with a natural process, things are more resilient. And when that big flood event happens, say that one critical moment I was mentioning where, you know, maybe you'd have to be there to make sure something happened and the water went just the right way. Well, at at that moment, I don't need to be there and probably pretty likely over time that you aren't. And, you know, what I'm kind of interested in is how do these more complicated systems that really impose a new pattern on the landscape, well, how do they last over long periods of time? You know, most of what we're seeing now, especially in kind of contemporary permaculture circles, might be a few decades old at the most how are these places going to function, you know, in a hundred years? And I'm not sure, you know, I think a lot of that totally depends on what the tenure of the land is. And if you have knowledgeable people on the land who know how to, you know, work those systems and so forth. But it's something that, that I consider quite a bit. And, you know, that the challenge is though, when you're only working with natural drainage patterns, of course, your cultivation opportunities are also equally limited. So it's a give and take everywhere you go. And so, I, you know, I'm, I don't classify myself as a farmer. I definitely have some background in agroecology and an interest there. But where I've put my energies is into more into land restoration. So I think there's there's a bit of a natural tension there that becomes more and more clear to me, especially when I have the opportunity to meet and talk with some people who are just doing some really amazing work in terms of the water harvesting, key line, hugelkultur, you know, pond building, a lot of these things that maybe don't really fit my restoration paradigm. 
but are, you know, worthwhile endeavors. And, you know, I, I will fully admit that I'm not always completely comfortable with them in terms of, you know, ecological processes in the, in the big picture on a catchment scale. And so I think there's, there's trade-offs there that are worth looking into. And it's not just as simple as saying, well, if there's water available, we need to, to harvest as much of it as we can and sequester it for our own uses. Then moving away from that human imposition that comes from some of these high input systems and looking at restoration, what are some of the watershed restoration techniques? Yeah. So as far as watershed restoration techniques go, you know, this is where it ties directly back into land management. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to do a fair amount of traveling around the U.S. and, and uh, Canada and Australia and talk to landowners about land restoration and erosion control and water management. Um, and, and I've also met a lot of great people who are doing all sorts of regenerative forms of land management. And over time, my conversation with people and the talks I give have evolved into about 50% of the time, I'm actually talking about what are the things you can do as far as regenerative land management before you actually have to start doing your land restoration problem-solving techniques because to solve a problem, we have to get it at what the source of it is, and quite often, it's land management. That's really what's created the watershed degradation that we're looking at. So, you know, if if we just set out to solve the problem and, you know, put in the, the structures in the creeks and so forth that would fix what's going on in the creek um, that's causing degradation and not look at the overall land management, um, then then we're actually, you know, we're, we're just looking at symptoms rather than causes. So, you know, I think that's where any kind of agricultural system that builds soil and also enhances ecological services is going to be beneficial in terms of the broad-scale watershed health. And that's really where I start with. And there's people have far more expertise um, than I do about all those various realms. And I usually refer people to those experts that are out there really pushing the envelope as far as regenerative land management and agricultural techniques, because that's the starting point. And, you know, I have the opportunity to go on to a lot of farms and ranches and talk to landowners in very practical terms about, well, what's doable in your operation? You know, farmers don't have a lot of time to do, say, stream restoration or build labor-intensive erosion control structures or something like that. But what they do have time to do is to maybe modify their land management practices in such a way that they're no longer at a minimum that they're no longer contributing to the problems that are leading to land degradation. And hopefully we can do better than that, that that they're actually creating a beneficial situation. And and to me, that's, you know, the heart of regenerative agriculture is that the agricultural system itself doesn't just regenerate more productivity, but it has beneficial aspects into healing the earth. So that's the starting point. And then once we look at that, then we can start taking a, a very kind of focused look at what are the issues worth dealing with. And so, you know, we look at the landscape and try to figure out what, what the most productive areas are. So, 
you know, a lot of times those are our streams and wetlands and things like that. But if you're on a smaller property, it might just be the part of your land that has the most healthy, productive soil. It doesn't have to be a stream or a wetland. And the last thing you want on your most healthy, productive soil would be any kind of erosion. So, you know, first we could address it through land management practices, and then we could look at some of the actual physical structures that stop erosion. So a lot of the land restoration techniques, we use utilize natural materials such as rocks. And um, again, this ties back into the long history of agriculture and water harvesting. You know, through some of my studies when I was uh, still a graduate student, I studied traditional water harvesting methods quite a bit, especially of the indigenous peoples of the Southwest. And they employed a lot of techniques to harvest water off the landscape. And the ones I was most interested in, you know, involved simple placement of rock. You know, you can think of like putting check dams in a gully or something like that. But also a lot of what they did are uh, used rock mulches, so covering the ground with a single layer of rock. And what I realized is, well, if an entire culture could grow its staple crops in an arid environment, Using this technique, certainly um, I could get a little bit of native vegetation or grasses established to reduce some erosion using this technique. So a lot of the simple work we're doing on the smaller scale are utilizing these really ancient dryland farming techniques such as rock and gravel mulches and just changing the form of them to complement our ability to stop erosion in the landscape and to use say, a simple rock mulch placed strategically so that it influences the flow of water as a way to get some vegetation established, which would ultimately be, you know, your best solution for erosion. So the techniques themselves are as old as agriculture, and that's where they come from. And what we've spent time, and I say say collectively myself and a a lot of the folks who have studied and, and had the, the pleasure to meet a gentleman named Bill D. Dyke here in New Mexico who uh, created a, a stream restoration method called induced meandering. Uh, well, he and a lot of folks that have worked with him have been, you know, developing different ways to shape a really simple material on the ground. And The way I like to think of it is the point isn't to reshape the surface of the ground. It's actually to reshape the column of water as it moves across the ground and to create places for it to slow down and infiltrate, soak into the soil and grow vegetation. And we'll use that for, you know, when I think about erosion control, good erosion control is just as much water harvesting as anything else. So to me, the two things are synonymous. If you're controlling erosion, you're actually harvesting runoff to control that erosion. So it's very different than traditional erosion control, you know, engineered erosion control techniques with wired baskets and rock that's strapped down to the ground with various types of steel wire and posts and everything like that. We we don't use any of that material. We just try to stick to what would be natural in the landscape. I like the strategy of controlling erosion to harvest water. In the conversation about permaculture, I've kind of been thinking about the hierarchy of permaculture design, that there's the prime directive and ethics at the top as like our 40,000 foot view of why we do what we do within ecological design. 
then the principles are our ways to conceptualize our interaction with the world. And then usually that arrives at techniques that are the actual on-the-ground practices. But I've been putting a third layer in between the principles and the techniques of strategies. The idea of slow it, spread it, sink it for harvesting water. And another way then to harvest water is to control erosion and how that fits into the model of observing and interacting and using slow and small solutions. And as you mentioned, that we can value renewable resources and services by looking at what's in the environment already in order to develop those controls and how that would be different for me here in Pennsylvania, where I have to deal less with an arid environment and more being in a water-rich, flood-prone area and how we can be using the same ideas to come up with completely different solutions in completely different regions of the country. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, Scott, because, you know, I, of course, started my career here in the southwestern U.S. Um, I'm still based here. I have had the privilege to be able to start working in in wetter and wetter areas. I'm doing a lot more work in creeks and rivers and at a larger scale now. So, you know, for me, the the more I can interact directly with water, the, the more I enjoy what I'm doing. And it becomes somewhat of a you know, an abstraction when, when you're really talking about kind of drier areas and dealing with erosion control. And you have to get really good at imagining what the water is doing when it's flowing because it might actually be flowing for a few hours a year or something like that. So I think that's kind of developed in myself a keen eye for how to read the landscape maybe in a different way. That you wouldn't have to pick up some of these more subtle skills of, about tracking water and and how it moves across the landscape if it were there all the time. But I've also had the opportunity to work in some quite wet places. Last month, I was actually um, in far north Queensland, Australia, in uh, one particular area that gets at least nine feet of rain a year. Uh, Absolutely different environment here, but as in here in the southwest, but Water moves fundamentally the same in in every landscape. Of course, it's it's flowing downhill, and all the principles we apply are the same. And you know, in terms of dealing with erosion, the strategies for a humid environment aren't that much different. And so, you know, again, there's trade-offs everywhere. So, the challenge in an arid environment is that you don't have a lot of plant cover just as a baseline to begin with. So, you know, there's going to be less than there would be in humid areas. So natural erosion processes are going to be more severe to begin with. And in New Mexico, we get our our rain delivered during the monsoon season, which hopefully we're moving into in the, the next week or so here, where we get these intense convective thunderstorms that dump a lot of rain at once. So wet climates have their own challenges, and of course, yes, you do have more water, but it also means there's more vegetation to hold the soil together. So the underlying strategies are the same as far as how you approach the work and how you can reduce erosion, and what we're contending with in more arid environments is getting vegetation established a bit quicker. That's our, our weak point here in a more humid climate, it might be having a project or a structure that is constructed in such a way that it's ready for what could potentially be a quite large flood at at just about any time. But 
you also have the benefit of being able to establish vegetation at a much faster rate. So it's a trade-off. Every environment has its challenges, but I've found that the, the various kinds of simple rock and wood structures that we're using, things like the Zuni bowls and One Rock dams, Media Lunas, all those things have their place um, in these different landscapes. And no doubt there's also an infinite number of variations on that theme that can be created given the the site-specific conditions. And I I think that's the most important bottom line. I do have kind of my cookbook of solutions that I teach just because, you know, going to to a lot of different places, you have to have something that's kind of well-organized and concise that you can give to people as kind of to add to their toolbox. But I really prefer, and I think you get much better results if you're looking at every situation as a site-specific condition that you're responding to and trying to work with. And, you know, there might be a unique solution that I'm not going to be able to tell you what it is until I understand what's going on better there. So, you know, what what I encourage people to do is to learn more about kind of some of the, the fundamentals of how water moves across the landscape in terms of geomorphology and how it shapes the surface of the land and how that process interacts with the ecology of the land. And if you can start to read those patterns, then you should be able to come up with the the solutions that would either reduce erosion or increase the moisture availability in the landscape with unique solutions that you can come up with yourself. And that speaks to taking time and to gain experience before we try to delve into changing the landscape. But as with your early days, having a space to begin that work before doing that kind of work for others. Absolutely. It's a bit of a catch-22 because when you start out and you have a lot of enthusiasm and ideas and a lot of folks just find they don't have the place to implement them, and, you know, there there is a, a certain danger in creating a, a larger problem by doing something that, that you're unsure of. And, you know, I can speak to that directly. Uh, I misread the erosion situation that I had on my own piece of property that we've been talking a little bit about here. And I actually created a much more severe erosion problem. So that was part of my trial and error was that I knew that I basically made it worse through all of my best efforts. I clearly made it worse and that was unacceptable to me. I couldn't walk away from it and leave it. And it's really kind of why I pushed it to the extreme and actually got, you know, went not only to the the trial and error and all the research I could do, but actually went into the academic world to see what kind of techniques um, I could learn there because you know, on one level, I did have a lot of guilt about the fact that I had degraded my own land trying to, to heal it. <laughs> and I had all of that enthusiasm of somebody who's been given a lot of powerful information, especially after I'd taken um, my PDC. And I really wanted to do all kinds of things. And I didn't really understand how the context of the landscape would influence what techniques would work versus what techniques wouldn't work. And I think that takes the most time to learn. It also takes a lot of experience. And, you know, when I teach now, I 
teach from the perspective of a practitioner, not from somebody who's immersed in the theoretical world. And also from a practitioner who, frankly, I'm not afraid to try things if I have some kind of baseline understanding. And and when I started out, um, I wasn't afraid to try them, even though I didn't have any baseline understanding of what I was doing. I just saw something I liked. I thought it would work there. And a lot of what's out there and available to folks now, you know, some great information on all these different kinds of techniques that people are employing all over the world. And they may or may not work. You know, there are plenty of things I've seen that I, I would love to be able to do and take something as simple as the as a contour soil. Well, in a in an arid environment where there's a high rate of natural erosion, there's a lot of sediment and soil particles moving all the time because not much of the ground is covered with vegetation. Something like a swale that slows down that runoff and will get it to soak in, well, that's the good part of it. The bad part of it is if that runoff is flowing across ground that doesn't have much vegetation on it, it's going to be picking up a lot of soil particles. And as it slows down in your swale, it's going to fill your swale in with sediment. And once the swale's filled in, at some point, it's very likely to breach and send the water off into an entirely new direction across kind of marginally vegetated land, quite often leading to severe erosion. So, you know, I started out with just assuming that, well, swales are going to be the best thing. I live in a dry landscape. This is a great way to harvest water and get it to soak into the ground. But um, given kind of the natural dynamic dynamics of the landscape, um, I've actually found that swells are a relatively poor choice in that kind of environment and wouldn't use them now. And that was from trying it, <laughs> realizing what was going wrong, and then trying to do various other things. So it's easy to set out with a lot of enthusiasm, um, and it's really important to get the hands-on experience. And it's easy for me to, with a lot of hindsight here to say, well, you want to go out and you want to try things, but you also don't want to mess anything up. So where do you have the license to experiment <laughs> without causing a lot of uh, potential harm? And, I, and that potential is there, absolutely, when you're working with water. And I, I like to say that when you're working with water, you know, you, you can't just think about the amount of water you want when it's relatively scarce. You also have to think about well, what's going to happen on that big flood day that might not occur in, in the next few months or a few years or a few decades even, but sooner or later, you'll have some really huge rain events that will test every part of your system and what's going to happen on that day. And it's important to learn to anticipate that and, and also to understand that that's kind of the, the day when your responsibility for kind of manipulating a shared resource like water is at its highest, is what happens during those times. And it can be really challenging and, and tough to anticipate what's going to happen, especially the more complex the water harvesting system is, which is why I tend to stay with the more simplistic systems that are based on natural patterns and processes, because then I can say, well, well, during the big flood day, water's just going to be going the way it's always been going. And that's actually a design principle that I employ is that 
basically when you can't and don't want to control that volume of water, that you make sure that it's just going where it's always gone. So even if it, that's going to cause problems, it's it's going to cause a known problem <laughs> versus diverting water into an entirely new flow path and creating a entirely new situation. I'd really like to thank you for that perspective. I know what it's like to get out of a PDC and feel very energetic and that I can do anything and everything. And then kind of standing there with a shovel in my hand going, uh, I really don't don't know what I'm about to do, but, but let's do something. <laughs> and the mistakes that come with it. In my case, it was not trying to move water, but it was trying to plant blueberries and not thinking about the temporal changes of planting them under a tree that I had observed for years and thought was mature. And only by putting something underneath of it did it reveal how limited my perspective was. In this time together, I think we've covered everything that I had in mind. Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I wanted to uh, end our conversation with with one last thought here, and that's regarding um, the beauty of some of these systems that we're placing onto the earth. And I think that's a really important piece of it. It's, a, it's another way of communicating. And uh, with my background in art, it's something I place a lot of emphasis on. And they're, they're both you know, kind of spiritual and aesthetic reasons why we want to place more beautiful things on this earth. But I like to talk about the functional reasons. And um, there's a great quote by Aldo Leopold that I, I like to use. He says that a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. And it is wrong when it tends otherwise. And I agree with that sentiment completely. And we can also take that statement and kind of turn it over and look at it from a different perspective. And, you know, the way I like to think of it is that when we take the time to understand a natural system enough to interact with it in an informed way and create some kind of regenerative opportunity, it's important that beauty is a part of that thought process because if you take the time to make something beautiful, it's going to tend to fit into the landscape and it's also going to function at a higher level. And I think that it's something that just emerges out of that approach to the work that if we're, you know, more careful, more diligent and take that time to make things seamlessly blend into the surrounding landscape, then there's this beautiful aesthetic quality that emerges that will actually help things to function better. And I think that's a really valuable piece in what we're doing here. And it's also a way, like in the work I do, with erosion control and water harvesting and even dealing with storm water and things like that um, at times in urban environments, you know, those might be subjects that people in the, the general public who maybe aren't already kind of on this path to permaculture or regenerative land management and things like that, they might have no interest in whatsoever, but we can actually tempt them to start down the path by being able to exhibit some beautiful examples of work that have a lot of craftsmanship and also function at a very, very high level. So I've got some stormwater harvesting structures around Santa Fe here that are in 
public parks and at the uh, Santa Fe Botanical Garden that we've constructed to, to both be entirely functional, to serve a purpose to both harvest and manage flood water and storm water uh, during the big rain events, but they're also aesthetically beautiful. And what, what I've found is that folks who wouldn't have been interested otherwise will become engaged in a way that you wouldn't expect. And I think that's, a, that's an important element to doing any kind of work with the land because that's just a, another part of the, the legacy that we can have. You know, it's, it's the fingerprints that we leave behind. Um, are they going to be, you know, completely utilitarian or do, do they enhance the beauty that's around us? And I think that's something that's much needed because it can be pretty easy to get discouraged by what we see around us and, and you know, some of the developments we, we see in terms of, you know, commercial and residential developments and the abuses to the land around us. So, yeah, I'd be happy to end things there. If we don't accomplish much more than putting some beauty into this world, and then I think we'd be doing pretty good at that. And this conversation is a part of adding more of that beauty to the world by helping to inspire and encourage others to do this kind of generous work. Thank you for being a part of this conversation with me today. You're welcome, Scott. And that was Craig Sponholtz of Watershed Artisans. You can find out more about him and his work at watershedartisans.com. What I liked about this conversation with Craig was the role that we have as designers to act as preservers of the land. We can use the design tools presented in permaculture to create solutions that stop erosion with structures built from natural materials that harvest water by slowing it, spreading it, and sinking it, all while keeping that water from cutting through the earth. Craig does this in a way that doesn't disrupt the water flow, but takes the path into account. For all the avocation for the use of particular techniques, this approach takes us back to observing the landscape first and deciding on what is most appropriate, rather than looking for a one-size-fits-all solution. The strategy of water harvesting leads to a number of techniques. Some that Craig mentioned include check dams, one-rock dams, rock mulches, and zuni bowls. In the show notes, you'll find a link to a document that Craig made, along with Avery Anderson, that explains these techniques in detail and also includes one more called Media Luna. I also found a nice piece written by Bill Zadike about induced meandering. And for those of you who have a copy of Mullison's Designer's Manual, Chapter 7, Section 3 includes a number of great techniques as well. To take those ideas of on-the-ground strategies and techniques a little bit further, if you're a parent or an educator and you'd like to experiment with children and teach them about water flow and erosion, I've included a number of links in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com for projects and experiments that you can practice alongside your children to show the act of erosion or how water percolates through the soil, among other things. Another resource for parents and educators is Jen Mendez at permikids.com. She has edge alliances and an education design course you may find useful to achieving your overall education goals. Of the edge alliances, the first is on Friday, December 5th, 2014, from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. This is going to be discussing the K-12 online education programs. Saturday, January 10th, 2015, from 12 noon to 1 p.m. Eastern, Jen is joined by Kelly Hogan from the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children to discuss opportunities for those who want to integrate traditional permaculture learning into the lives of children and adolescents. 
Finally, her next education design course begins on January 9th for the winter 2015 class. Find out about all of that at www.permikids.com. Wherever your path takes you, now and into the future, I'm here to help you along the way. Let's create a better world every day. Contact me if there's any way I can assist you. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, and you can also join in the conversations at facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast, or follow the show on Twitter, where I am at permaculturecst. Until the next time, spend each day making the world around you the place you want to live by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.